Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's a couple of seconds off four o'clock and Jan Bartlett with you here for Tuesday Home Time until six tonight. On the program today, reaction to the death of another asylum seeker on Manus Island. This time it'll be Dr Brian Simaratna. Michael Kirby's praise for Israeli judges who support torture and hostage-taking. We'll hear about an article by journalist Michael Brell. Proceedings in the Moreland City Council to the neo-Nazi raid and saying no to the development of the toxic site in Faulkner. We're speaking to Sue Bolton. Thoughts of human rights activist Jack Smith. Monthly look at issues, looking at GM issues with Bob Phelps and a copy of the, or part of the speech at the recent IPAN conference by Dr Margie Beavis. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy in October 19. No, it's 19. It's 2017. A week, Jane, listener, when as we celebrate with our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie, bash up the workers, that as far as we can ascertain, no true blue Aussies were killed in the latest US of the UN of the US of the world massacre. Just three score or so expendable gamblers and country and western concert goers and perhaps a few tourists caught up in the war zone. Oh, and a few hundred more injured, but any tourist heading for Las Vegas is surely also expendable, but I raise this to make one very important point. Those high-powered, train-killer, innocent weapons didn't kill one person, because it's not guns that kill, not innocent, innocent, high-powered, train-killer rifles. No, it's the people who buy them that kill. And we can't blame the guns for that, like a dear little puppy who can't determine who will buy her or him. U.S. our big supremo Donald Trump of the poor said this gun buyer of the innocent, innocent arsenal was evil for taking advantage of the promises Donald made to the innocent guns lobby like removing the odd psychopathic health problem as a barrier to enjoying your God-given constitutional rights, laws to make it even easier for the innocent guns not to kill. And he is attempting to get a regulation through to allow silences on all these train killer arsenals, making it more fun, because the crowd will just see people dropping and have no idea what's going on but only because it's people who kill and not the guns. And it's all right to say, but if he, mostly it's a he, didn't have the arsenal, come on, he would have taken the lift downstairs and strangled 60 or so concert goers. That's a ridiculous argument. Oh, and Julie also said she had sent a message that true blue Aussies, that's all of us, true blue Aussies' thoughts and prayers were with the victims, which must make them feel heaps better already. Well, except the dead ones, in fact, make the whole trauma almost worthwhile. A week when we once again had that one day in September, and for once in September, what's happening to the AFL? 
But listeners to this segment Saturday will know at that point the game had not got underway and was looking doubtful. Let's check if anything's happened since. And once again, we're fortunate to have our regular caller Kevin at the ground alongside our much-loved special commentator, Michelle. Let's get to the ground. What's happening, Kevin? Any sign of the game starting yet? Still a sensation over here. It seems there's still an energy crisis affecting the ground and the players. There's no power. And there's some conjecture they couldn't pay the bill and have been disconnected. This is a sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. It seems there's an energy crisis affecting the ground and the players. There's no power and there's some conjecture they couldn't pay the bill. Great comment, Michelle. What insight. And even if they can raise the money for the bill and get the power back on, the game still may not go on. Another sensation. A group of caring business class players have trapped their captain, ton of ball in a big net and are holding him back saying he should not cross the boundary onto the right wing because that is too far to the left. What's going on, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. A group of caring business class players have trapped their captain, Mr. Tunnabull, in a big net and are holding him back, saying he should not cross the boundary onto the right wing because that is too far to the left. Brilliant analysis, Michelle. Brilliant. Notice the caring business class ex-captain a bit more for the buffers has declared they should not cross the boundary line at all because there would be men together and women together and this would be bringing politics into sport, an attack on our Judeo-Christian ethic. What's he up to, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. The caring business class ex-captain, Mr. A Bit More for the Bosses, has declared they should not cross the boundary line because there would be men together and women together, and this would be bringing politics into sport, an attack on our Judeo-Christian ethic. What would we do without you, Michelle? What would we do? Now I'm looking for the opposition and its captain short and ambition. There's no sign of them not to be seen. Where are they, Michelle? What's going on? Very interesting, Kevin. The opposition and its captain, Mr. Short and Ambition, are not to be seen. Well spotted, Michelle, well spotted. Well, not spotted, I suppose. <laughs> and more delays, the, this time from the corporate boxes. Following the US of decision to slash the cost for the corporates at US of football games, our corporates say they'll be forced to evacuate the corporate boxes if Tunner Bull doesn't give them the same concessions. Analysis, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. Following the US of decision to slash the cost for the corporates at US of football games, our corporate sales say they'll be forced to evacuate the corporate boxes if Mr. Ton of Bull doesn't give them the same concessions. Another stunning analysis, Michelle, but after three days over here, it's looking more and more doubtful that the game will ever start. Well, thanks, Kevin. We'll take it back here in the studio, but aren't we fortunate to have those deep insights from the riveting Michelle? We're lucky to have her. While on sport, in the week that was sport, golfer Tiger Woods and Iron says he may not play competitive golf again because of a back injury. Understandable, because I've heard Shager's back can be a real problem. 
Speaking of two sides on the same side, sad week for all of us who appreciate law and order in the workplace, the never-ending battle to contain the evil of evil unions, although battle is an unfortunate term because it implies there might be two sides, caring employers on one side, lazy avaricious workers on the other, struggle, indeed class struggle, when we know that is a distant legacy, fading memory, and if only the evil unions would realise that reality, there would be no need for the Building and Construction Jackboot Inquisition Commission. Sad week for all of us as the much-lamented Nigel Hedge kissed the bosses ended his term as Chief Inquisitor, forced out when all he was trying to do was prosecute the evil through laws he knew should be the laws, even if they were not the laws. But Nigel made a moving, indeed, beautiful farewell speech. He did not regret one second of his 48 years in law enforcement, many of them as a federal... Sorry, a copper. We have to admire someone who has such respect for the law, don't we? I have thoroughly enjoyed the challenges that the last decade or so have brought. Who wouldn't thoroughly enjoy smashing evil unions and evil workers? And Nigel told the Inquisition Jackboot staff he couldn't stress enough the importance of their work. I can't stress enough how much we must all hate workers, hate, 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 how much we must all hate unions who have no respect for Nigel's laws. And he, and this is heartwarming, he had received dozens of goodwill and thank you messages from contractors, industry associations, caring employers and politicians and... No, no, can't see one. No, 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 no unions or workers. And after all he's done for them. Oh, won't we miss him and won't we miss Nigel's law? Meanwhile, Energy Behemoth, AG Hell for You, rejected Malkin's generous offer that it keep its clunky Liddell coal polluter open, announcing it could replace the fossil with renewables, prompting an angry Malcolm to spit that he would only support a fossil and would reject the renewable alternative. Barnacle and the team of fossils patted him on the back. Well said, Malcolm. What happens if the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow? We need renewable coal. And certainly the sun not shining, or at least the shining not making it through the fossil pollution, is a real possibility, so Barnacle and co are on the ball. Look, I don't want people to get the wrong impression, Malcolm clarified. It's not that we don't support renewable energy, it's just that we don't support renewable energy. No, no, let me further clarify that. It's not that I don't support renewable energy, it's just that they don't support renewable energy. In the latest meeting with utility bosses, the utility bosses said they would provide enough of our gas to keep things running as long as we were prepared to pay the excessive rip-off price they demand. This, Malcolm boasted, would lower energy prices. Um, Malcolm, um, Malcolm, how can the utility bosses demanding the highest possible rip-off price they can demand lower the price? Good question. How can the utility bosses demanding the highest possible rip-off price they can... Yes, well, Scott, Scott, how can the utility bosses demanding the highest possible rip-off price they can demand lower the price? Scott? Scott? 
better explain that. Time for us to clarify. Malcolm calls Scuttlebem Morlash son Scott for some reason. Well, well, not the for some reason bit, but Scott. Finally, can't complain about their energy policy, though it's working well, but we have a little further to go. Right now, we're up there sharing the lead in the world energy combustion stakes with Turkey. Come on, Turkey? Surely we can beat Turkey. Let's make a promise. For the next 12 months, we'll throw ourselves selflessly into the combustion emission business and do true he proud. Elevate us to outright top of the world on the combustion pile by this time next year. Give Turkey the bird. Presuming humanity survives our selfless efforts. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and it's good morning at 9 o'clock tomorrow for City Limits with Kevin and friends. If he had been offered appropriate health care and support, he wouldn't have taken his own life. These were the words of a friend and fellow asylum seeker incarcerated on Manus Island, PNG, speaking about a Tamil asylum seeker. But surely the issue should be if he had been offered appropriate asylum in Australia after escaping from the brutal regime in Sri Lanka, he wouldn't have taken his own life. Dr Brian Sinuratna is a lifelong human rights activist and he knows full well the physical and psychological trauma suffered by those who managed to escape the terror for Tamils in Sri Lanka through his medical practice in Brisbane. I think that one of the problems in Australia as well as the other major countries in the world is that they do not really know the reality of what is going on in Sri Lanka. They think that just because there has been a change of government from the dreadful Rajpaksa uh, Junta to Maithripala Sirisena and uh, Rani Vikramasinghe, the president and the prime minister respectively, that the situation has changed for the better for the Tamils uh, in the north and the east from where all these asylum seekers come. I have documentary evidence that nothing has changed. In fact, it has probably got worse. All that uh, your listeners have to do is to go into Google and not type my name, but type out the International Crisis Group and if you can't remember that, just write, type Sri Lanka's Transition to Nowhere. That was published in May 2017. I'll read it out again. Sri Lanka's Transition to Nowhere. And you will get a very clear understanding of the situation in Sri Lanka. Not only in the uh, Tamil areas, but also in the south. The Tamil areas have actually got worse to the extent that it is really not livable. The question is not why people are coming as asylum seekers, but why people stay. And the answer is that they don't have the money to come. Uh, I think that what Australia is doing with the asylum seekers in Manus and in uh, all the other hell holes that asylum seekers are held is a violation of the UN Asylum Seeker or Refugee Convention, which Australia has signed and ratified. And I think the Australian government should, uh, the people should know that this government and the previous one and the previous one 
have uh, violated the UN uh, Human Rights Convention. And that is a serious issue. Although Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and the International Crisis Group have been allowed into Sri Lanka, the news that is allowed out is censored, either self-censorship or people told, uh, have been told that uh, they cannot report on what they see. And if they do, they won't be allowed in. The situation is dreadful. Up in Jaffna, right at the top in the Ramil areas, it is in chaos. The entire area with 500,000 people is awash with uh, illicit drugs brought in by the armed forces from India and sold at a colossal profit. Alcohol is at an unprecedented level and sexual violence and the violation of human rights is increasing, if anything. Education is in chaos. There has been uh, the professor of uh, psychiatry uh, in Jaffna uh, University uh, wrote an article titled A Lost Generation of Tamil Youths, in which he say, stated that 70% of, of candidates sitting for the grade 5 exam were unsuccessful annually, and only 50% uh, were successful in the general certificate of education O-level. And at the A-level, the advanced level, only 15% uh, qualified to get into university. Now, this is coming from an area where when I was associate professor of medicine in uh, Sri Lanka in early 1970s, about 75% of the medical students were from this very area. And here, only 15% are getting in. In summary, the education system is in chaos. Law and order is in chaos. There is no legal uh, system anywhere in the Tamil areas. Now, getting to the north and the east from where most of these asylum seekers come, including the one that you just referred to, it is not under the Sri Lankan government. It is under the Sri Lankan military. It is a military stroke police state. And this has gone on now, what, seven years after the end of the war. And the question has to be asked, what is the Sri Lankan government doing running the north and the east as a police state? Because as long as they do it, they are not accountable to anyone, there will be a flow of refugees. And if Australia's reaction to that is to send them to Manus or Nauru or uh, some of the hellholes in this country, it is really an outrage. And that's Dr. Brian Sinaratna, medical doctor from Brisbane who knows only too well the suffering of Tamils in his home country of Sri Lanka. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Shattered was one reaction to the news that former High Court judge, recipient of the 1990 Australian Human Rights Medal in 1998, named as Laureate of UNESCO Prize for Human Rights and Education, Michael Kirby, 
these are just a few of his awards, has heaped praise on two Israeli judges who endorsed torture and hostage-taking, amongst other accolades, to the Israeli legal system, in an interview to the Australian Jewish News on the 1st of September. Journalist and pro-Palestinian activist Michael Brawl has written an extensive piece on this in the September 10 edition of New Matilda. Michael, how much knowledge did you have of Michael Kirby's affinity with Israel before this interview with the Australian Jewish News? Well, he said in the interview that he sat on the bench in the 80s in Israel, which I didn't know about, so I haven't been able to find any more information about that. But before it, I knew that um, occasionally uh, he'll quote something that um, uh, Aharon Barak, who was a president of the Israeli Supreme Court, said uh, there should be no black holes in the law or something like that, which, you know, I mean, I think there is, there's at least some black holes in the Israeli um, occupation system, at least. But... um. So it's a strange thing to quote. But otherwise, I guess I didn't know that much about what Kirby had said about Israel. This is probably the strongest thing in support of Israel, or of his legal system that I know of. Can you talk about these two men whom he's praised? First, Moshe Ladu. Who is he and what role has he played? There were two justices he praised. One of them was Moshe Landau. So Landau was... Um, the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, I think from 1980 to 1982. He was probably best known for um, being the judge in the Eichmann trial. So Eichmann, of course, was um, captured by Israel and Latin America and flown to Israel to stand trial for his role in the Holocaust. And Landau was the judge. Uh, he was treated very scathingly in um, Hannah Arendt's book about the trial. But um, in the 80s, there was a bit of a scandal about, I can't remember the details, but about how Palestinians were being tortured in custody. And so there was an investigation, it was called the Landau Commission, so it was headed by uh, the retired president of um, the Israeli Supreme Court, Moshe Landau. And Moshe Landau basically said there are three positions. One is we say no torture at all, and it's like that's unrealistic. The other one is we say you can torture as much as you like. And he says, well, I don't know about that. So he says the third one is we regulate it and um, we allow them to apply what he calls moderate physical pressure. And I believe there was a secret appendix of the commission, I don't think it's been declassified, where he recommends various types of um, moderate physical pressure that um, Israeli intelligence was allowed to use. So it's things like the frog position, the banana position, so like uh, people would be put in agonizing positions where they're bent over chairs, so that their back is bent, and they're just left like that for a long time. Uh, shaking, a soldier would take someone's head and they'd violently push their head suddenly, and uh, that killed people. Uh, so the moderate physical pressure was pretty brutal and um, the Landau Commission, which was passed to investigate the Israeli intelligence and torture, basically legalized torture. I think it was the only country in the world that formally legalized torture. And so Israel legalized torture and so there were tens of thousands of Palestinians who were tortured because the Landau Commission, headed by Moshe Landau, had given the green light to torture. Uh, so that was from, I think, 87 to 89 until uh, the Supreme Court said mostly no to torture but not entirely no to torture. So that's probably what Marshall Landau is famous for. But um, the record of the Supreme Court is pretty ugly. There's a good book on it by um, an Israeli academic. Uh, name I can't... David Kretzner, I think. Uh, where he goes through the record of the court on things like uh, deportations, house demolitions, and so on. And so Marshall Landau's record is darker than anyone How long did he stay in power? Marshall Landau? Mm. In that position. So he was uh, president of the Israeli Supreme Court for, I think, two years, 1980 to 1982. I think he was a judge on the Supreme Court for 
a long time, maybe decades. And the, the Landau Commission was just something that happened in 1987. So it was, it was like the Israeli equivalent of like a royal commission. And then we have the second judge whom Kirby praised in his interview with Australian Jewish News. Again, a judge in the Israeli Supreme Court. How did his views and actions support or differ from those of Landau? So Moshe Landau, David, uh, Michael Kirby called a wonderful man, which uh, is an interesting way to describe someone who legalized the torture of thousands of Palestinians, uh, among other things. The other one who Kirby seemingly identified as liberal justice was uh, Aharon Barak. So he was the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, I think from like 96, 2006 or 2007 or something like that. He was, let's say, more progressive, but in the Israeli context that doesn't mean much. I think in 96, the CATI, so the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel, petitioned the Supreme Court saying, we want you to ban torture. And a bunch of other NGOs signed up for that too. The Supreme Court finally ruled on it in 1999. And uh, Aharon Barak, I think, wrote the lead judgment. They banned, I think, like four or five methods of interrogation, which the CATI argued was torture, and the court declined to identify them as torture or even ill-treatment. Uh, and the argument was made, the reason the court declined to do that is that if they said it was torture, they'd be obliged to prosecute them. Uh, you're meant to punish people who torture. So the court didn't identify it as torture, they just said, no, you're allowed to do it. So Barak said, he didn't necessarily identify it as torture, but he said moderate physical pressure or whatever is obviously bad, and so it shouldn't happen, except in cases of necessity. So it means that, that means like ticking bombs cases. And, uh, you know, already you, you, that's a, leap, a loophole, and then, like, they didn't really install the kind of checks and balances where if you torture Palestinians, you get caught and, you know, go to jail for it. And so within a few years, Amnesty International said torture is widespread rife again. So there was a drop-off between after 1999 and the amount of torture, which, you know, had just been given a green light. And this was more of a, well, if you say that it was a, a, a ticking time bomb case, then you can get away with it. So uh, there's still semi-regular torture, but it's just not on the enormous scale that it was after the Landau Commission. So that's a Haran Barak. And, you know, he, he has an ugly record on, like, a lot of issues. I believe he supported the deportation of um, the Palestinian in the West Bank to Gaza on the basis of secret evidence uh, that, uh, you know, no trial, not even allowed to see what the case against him was. He was just deported. And lots of ugly things like that. One of the most scandalous judgments by Aharon Barak, he, he reverted eventually, but even so, obviously there was a conflict between Israel and Lebanon. Uh, so Israel invaded in 78, 82, 93, 96, and so on. And so the people in Hezbollah who wanted uh, the return of Lebanese prisoners, they would sometimes capture Israeli soldiers. And uh, when Israel wanted to put pressure on Hezbollah to release its soldiers, they would capture Lebanese people, including Lebanese civilians. And so there was a case in um, the 90s where Israel captured a bunch of uh, Lebanese people who obviously didn't pose a threat to anyone, but they wanted to use them as bargaining chips. And they went to the Supreme Court, and um, the court said, yeah, this is okay. So Aharon Barak, I think it was in 96, wrote a judgment where he defended the use of um, Lebanese civilians being held, even though he admitted they didn't pose any security threat to Israel. And I think in 1999 or 2000, he wrote a judgment where he reversed himself, and he said, you know, we can't do this anymore. But he, he, he identified this as the use of bargaining chips. So by his own logic, in his previous judgment, he said, yes, you can hold these people basically as hostages, and, you know, in his own world, Israel can hold them as bargaining chips. You know, which is just kind of scandalous. Like, you can't imagine many countries in the world where 
you know, a supposedly liberal and uh, forward-looking justice who applies the rule of law, as Michael Kirby characterized them, would say it's okay to hold civilians as bargaining chips in order to, you know, facilitate a prisoner exchange. I mean, maybe Al-Qaeda would produce the kind, or, you know, ISIS would produce the kind of jurisprudence where they support ransom and uh, taking hostages, but certainly not many liberal countries. So, you know, Barack changed his mind, but one of the reasons he gave is, well, it's pretty obvious that the people in, you know, the people in question are dead anyway, so we're probably not going to get them back, as that was part of why he reversed himself. You know, to characterize these kind of judges as liberal or progressive or, you know, devoted to the rule of law, it's just outrageous. Just reverting back to the torture, there's probably been many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of Palestinians who have been subjected to any number of these methods of torture. Yes. I think there was one study that found over 700,000 Palestinians have been detained by Israel since 1967, when the occupation began. So torture has been systemic from the start. You know, the Landau Commission came in time for the first of the father. So there was massive-scale uh, detection of Palestinians because uh, that's how Israel met the uprising with force and mass arrests and so on. So it really was an extremely egregious contribution to the oppression and uh, cruelty towards Palestinians. You know, the, the, the judgment by Barack lessened the amount of torture, but still, like, the, the Intifada broke out a year later. And so the Shabak, the Israeli intelligence organization, would have used a lot of torture with the kind of tacit blessing of the supposedly progressive judgment, which, you know, is acclaimed as having banned torture. But, you know, there aren't many countries which say you can torture some, you can't torture someone unless, you know, you say that there's a necessity. Like, under international law, there is no necessity, but that torture is never okay. Just finally, Michael, why do you believe Kirby gave this interview on the 1st of September? What do you believe were his motives? I mean, Kirby's never really been a radical. You know, he identifies as basically conservative. But, um, if you look at the kind of judgments he gave on the High Court, it was never, like, he, he was never a socialist or anything. He just defended things like um, the rule of law, the right to... Uh, the kind of principles of a fair trial and this kind of thing. And so, you know, he was always just kind of a, a more principled liberal than the other judges on the court who, you know, because they had such a terrible record and you know, virtually no commitment to international law and things like that. It made Kirby seem particularly good. But I, I don't know, like, I think Kirby has never been particularly politically courageous. You know, to me, it's not really that surprising. Disappointing because, you know, if you apply the same principles in the case of Israel that he does to everything else, you would hope that he'd be critical of the occupation. But, you know, he just hasn't... I don't have any particular insight into his mind, but, so I can't explain what went through it, but it's, it's pretty disappointing. Apart from your interview, have you heard any other criticisms of him? Um, I can offer other criticisms of him if you like, but um, I don't it, know other... Have you heard other people voice concerns about this interview? Or, you know, just people getting in touch after I wrote my article and saying they were disappointed in Kirby. Where do we go from here? I don't know. I wouldn't assume that you can change his mind. You know, you can't really look to people above who are respectable and fancy to say that, you know, activism has to come from below. It gives a lot of sucker to the Israeli lobby here in Australia. Yeah, but traditionally, like, a lot of um, prominent liberals and progressives have been pro-Israel. And uh, it's only a relatively recent development that there's been a kind of polarization where the left is pro-Palestinian and the right is pro-Israel. And Kirby is one of the very few exceptions and, uh, you know, he's 
part of a generation when it, where Israel was considered socialist and progressive. And I think that era is really coming to an end, and you can't really think of many other people like Kirby who are identified as on the left end of the spectrum. There aren't many people on the left who are supportive of Israel like they once were. Like, there are very few people like that. When people do identify as pro-Israel and left-wing, you know, they usually they don't really have much of a record of any kind of left-wing commitment or activism or anything. Thanks, Michael. Uh, pleasure. That was Michael Brell talking about an article written by Michael Kirby praising torture and hostage taking by the forces in Israel against Palestinians and people in Lebanon. It's 4.32 and you're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. G'day, this is Jacob Gregg. Starting in October, I'll be hosting a Friday rave here on 3CR. Each Friday, a different guest and I will be bringing our kitchen table analysis of the political issue of the week into the studio and relentlessly pulling it apart with a slant you won't find anywhere else. So make sure you knock off in time to grab a beer before five from Friday the 6th of October when my first week's guest will be Felicity Ruby here on Community Radio 3CR. I prefaced my interview last week with Moreland City Councillor Sue Bolton by saying that many people believe that monthly council meetings are pretty dull and predictable affairs, but that in recent times, those in Moreland and to a lesser extent Yarra and Darabin have not followed that path. And unfortunately, the meeting last Wednesday at Moreland began as being far from convivial due to a raid by neo-Nazis attacking the councillor's decision to stop celebrating Australia Day. But once that hate and intimidation was cleared from the hall, it failed to overshadow a great victory for the campaign for a toxic-free Faulkner. Sue is on the line once again. Sue, just reiterate what was on the agenda for that meeting last Wednesday. The agenda of the meeting last Wednesday, it was an urban planning committee, which means that it discusses development applications and the first of the development applications discussed was about the toxic site at 102 McBride Street in Faulkner. But um, prior to that meeting, there was a meeting where people, members of the public, could speak to their submissions to Moreland Council about its review of local laws because Moreland Council, like a lot of councils, has a lot of very undemocratic local laws on its books. A lot of councils have bans on stalls without permits, bans on handbills, distributing handbills without permits, and Moreland is similar. Moreland had also tried to sneak in a ban on protests without a permit, following on from our anti-racism rally in Coburg last year. And I publicised what Moreland Council was planning to do. And so we've had a couple of protests and people were at this meeting last Wednesday night before the Urban Planning Committee to speak to their submissions. And then just uh, as that meeting was starting, a bunch of about 12 Nazis turned up. Um, I think United Patriots Front with one of their Führers, Neil Erickson. I mean, they were sort of really just seemed like buffoons to me 
I'm assuming it's the same group that had bust in on the Yarra Council meeting previously. So they just bust in and milled around rather than just being a coherent protest. They sort of milled around, mainly uh, going up to councillors and yelling at them with megaphones, probably more particularly me and the mayor, and just condemning Moreland Council for making the decision to stop celebrating the 26th of January. And then what happened? They sort of milled around. I mean, I sort of laughed at them. They dressed in all their Aussie flag gear, their cricket hats, you know, cricket hats, sombreros with Aussie flag on them, those blow-up hands you take to the cricket with um, Aussie flag all over them and Aussie flag onesies, which must be their way of getting around the anti-mask laws. And... Really, they just milled around, hassled the councillors, probably more the people that the councillors they saw as responsible for the decision to stop celebrating Australia Day on the 26th of January. And then as soon as the councillors left the room, they then sort of milled around a little bit and then the CEO asked them to leave and they just left. I mean, they seemed like buffoons to me. They just sort of laughable. But then... You know, I also had to have to temper that by thinking, you know, I was a white woman in a council meeting, a public place. So, yes, they seemed quite laughable in that context. But on a lonely street, a Muslim woman who's covered or someone who's not white or someone who the Nazis decide is the sort of person they want to pick on, they probably wouldn't be. They probably would have been, you know, could have caused a lot of damage to people. And I think it does indicate how confident they have become over the last few years in Melbourne. Yeah, to the extent of even ringing unions and asking for their endorsement for their various fascist and racist rallies. So I think they are a threat, the fact that they are becoming so confident to be able to do something like this, because... While in that context of the council meeting at this stage, I mean, they are controllable, but that's very different to people on the street and people that they and the likes of Turnbull and Dutton and Abbott, etc., Corey Bernardi's of the world, give confidence to lone individuals who support the sorts of views of the United Patriots Front. You know, lone individuals get their you know, marching orders or, or um, confidence from those groups, even if they're not involved in those groups, and then just feel the confidence to march into, you know, Muslim restaurants or businesses and demand that halal signs be removed, otherwise the shop will be busted up or target people on the street. So I think, yeah, while they seem like buffoons, we've got to remember that these are sinister people and one of them, a man by the name of Philip Galea, was charged for casing or planning to attack left-wing targets, the Melbourne Anarchist Club, but also the Resistance Centre. Were there members of the community in that room at that time? Because I'd imagine that... Yeah, there, there were could a have number of members of the community... Who were um, intimidated? ...chanting. So they, I think there was certainly one man who was intimidated and I think the noise of the fascists storming in with their megaphones, I think he looked, I didn't realise he was in distress at the time, but 
when I saw photos, I realised he was in distress. I think there are a number of people who are very used to taking on the far right in the room, and they immediately started chanting, always Oz, always will be Aboriginal land, and various other chants. But I think certainly there was one, possibly more people who were upset. And there was also one man there who is quite hostile to the council for stopping celebrating uh, Australia Day on the 26th of January. And he sort of felt the need to distance himself from the Nazis. So that was sort of interesting as well. The issue that I had planned to speak with you today was the vote by the councillors on the Urban Planning Committee on the issue of a a plan to redevelop the site at 102 McBride Street in Faulkner. Half of the previous site is a new farm who manufactured the ingredients for Agents Orange, amongst other chemicals, many years ago. When we spoke last week, a couple of days before the meeting, you were hesitant to believe that the vote would would favour the residents opposing the development. Yet it was a unanimous decision to reject the development. What occurred in those pivotal days leading up to the vote? I think we got, the campaign group got a little bit better organised and some members of the campaign who hadn't been so prominent previously took a more public stance for the campaign. I think that's really what happened. So we had an emergency meeting on the Sunday before the Urban Planning Committee where we basically worked out an absolute definite plan in terms of our tactics of what we're going to call on council councillors to do because, you know, there have been quite a few changes that have happened with this site. So every time you think you're responding to something, then council officers or EPA put in new information or some new course of action so that then you're responding to something different. So we got a clear decision from the Toxic Free Faulkner Organising Committee um, about the course of action and then there was a consistent approach of members of the Toxic Free Faulkner talking to councillors and that was really important and I think one of the things that had a big impact was some of the newer residents to Faulkner who've got a university background, who are now working as researchers or in in those sort of jobs, who played a more prominent role in contacting councillors. And what I think happened is some of the councillors had stopped listening to some of the older, more working-class residents and were very receptive to some of the more university-educated residents who can put a good argument or structure an argument very well without getting sidetracked onto other issues. So I think for this campaign, I think that was a very good. The disturbing thing is that really councillors need to help everybody, regardless of whether you've got a university education or not. And I think if the university-educated residents hadn't played a more prominent role in the last couple of days leading up to the Urban Planning Committee, it's possible that that vote may have gone differently. Critically, we managed to get the support of the Greens and also one of the Labor Party people who agreed 
to support a rejection to the develop, development application. And those two, you know, those two groups, Labor and Greens, coming on board was really critical. The two Conservative independents were away for this council meeting. The fact that both Labor and the Greens were backing the resolution then left the Liberal Party independent, Alia Farnley, who claims to be the person who is the most caring of Faulkner, um, left him with no choice but to support the motion to reject the development application. I mean, he's someone who's never answered anyone's calls, never been prepared to, to discuss anything with the campaign and has been very much on the side of the developer in the past. So I think he felt he would have looked really crazy if he'd been the only one to vote to approve the application. I also think that the residents, when they stood up to speak, a whole lot of the newer residents spoke first, with the older residents speaking later. That was good because the councillors got to see a wide array of residents who were opposed to the side who brought up all sorts of different points. Residents had really done their research. And here I've got to thank Harry Van Morsten, the Western Region Environment Centre, who has played an amazing role in advising me and the campaign about issues of toxicity and weaknesses in the various audits and environmental assessments that have taken place on the site. Without him and his advice, we would have been in a far weaker position and we may very well not have got the result that we got because it's had to be residents and me that's had to, who've had to go away and do all the research, research which really you know, should have been done by council and really ultimately the EPA should have been raising the alerts about this site rather than just providing the council with a fig leaf to grant a permit on this site. So I think we've had to basically go and do all the research, which, you know, not all communities are going to be in a position to do that. I mean, the thing that has been great is we've had an intrepid, long-time resident whose mother led the campaign against the original new farm factory on the site when it was producing Agent Orange, who then led campaign to get the site cleaned up. Now that resident, Elsie Snowden, has passed away several years ago, but her son, you know, really raised the alert about this site and understands a lot of the information about how toxic the site is. And then it was that unity between the older residents and the newer residents who also went away and did their research, as well as myself and as well as Harry Van Morse, that really gave us the information that we needed to rebuff what the council and the EPA were telling us about how safe the site was and how they could develop this, how the site could be developed with some safety precautions. Did the developer or their representative also speak to the resolution for themselves? No, they didn't, and that might be because a week or so or a few days before the Urban Planning Committee the developer took the council to VCAT for not deciding on the development application within 60 days. So I think they'd 
basically dispensed with counsel by that point. Despite them doing that, it was really important that the council reject that application because the council needs to take a strong stand to VCAT about the fact that there hasn't been any comprehensive testing done for over 20 years and even that testing had weaknesses and there hasn't been a statutory audit done on the site since 1995. I'm not a planner, I'm not a scientist, but I believe the absence of this information ought to mean that the council has strong grounds for its rejection application and VCAT should follow that, co that course of action. Of course, there's no guarantee in VCAT, but the residents still need to remain engaged in the process, especially as we've had to drag the council kicking and screaming to the point of rejecting this development application. And, of course, there's also the possibility VCAT might approve it which would mean the struggle would have to go into a whole new phase of more direct action. But at the moment, I think we've got to engage with this VCAT process and try and ensure that the council mounts as strong a case as possible. Is there any idea of how long that might take to get that meeting? Now, I think there is a some sort of VCAT preliminary hearing coming up soon, uh, November, but the main hearing hasn't been set until something like March next year. So it's some time away, which also gives residents a little bit of time to organise. Does that mean that lawyers have to represent the council? I believe they should, but there's no guarantee that lawyers will represent the council. And also I believe that the council needs to hire some experts to present on its behalf because I don't believe there's a technical expertise within the council. But I also think there's a need to, need to think carefully about what experts represent the council because nowadays with the really corporatisation of universities, corporate funding of universities, the arms of the chemical companies reach deep within university departments and there's influence there. So not all academics are necessarily independent of corporate in interests. So it's going to be important that the council finds experts who truly are independent, especially when there's an EPA that's basically totally downplaying the risks of this site. And the EPA has played an absolutely appalling role in this whole affair. Could Harry Van Morse be the person who could represent the council? Well, I'm going to propose that and see what happens. I've also been contacted since the council decision by someone who's read the original council officer's report, an environmental scientist, I don't know, know him, but he's read the report in detail and done an analysis of it and discovered even more issue, more problems than we'd discovered and Harry Van Moore's discovered as well. Certainly, you know, he's someone to investigate as well, but I, I, I will certainly be recommending Harry Van Moore's be approached. Okay, well, good luck with that and congratulations for the job well done so far. Thanks very much, Jen, and also thank you to 3CR as well as Tuesday Home Time, Earth Matters and Green Left Radio have all 
done interviews with the campaign and I think your interviews, Jan, and the other programs have been also really important for spreading the word and someone contacted me after the last interview on Tuesday Home Time to offer to do some research for the campaign. So uh, thanks very much for, for all of the interest from Tuesday Home Time and 3CR and the other programs. Okay, so talk to you again. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Mullen City Councillor Sue Bolton. And when I interviewed Sue last week about the coming vote on the development site, I also spoke with her about the decision to stop celebrating Australia Day on the 26th of January. I didn't have time to play it last week, so this is the short interview about that topic. The second issue, the Moreland City Council voted to scrap Australia Day celebrations. What exactly does that mean? I think this is a big step forward. The council didn't go all the way, but I think it's still very significant what the council did. The position that was adopted by the council was similar to the decision decisions adopted by the Yarra and Darabin councils with one exception. So the thing, the aspects which are similar is to recognise that 26th of January was the beginning of the invasion of Australia, to recognise that 26th of January is a day of mourning for the First Nations community, that the 26th of January, that Council supports the Change of the Date campaign, that Council will cease to refer to the 26th of January as being Australia Day, so we'll stop recognising that date as Australia Day. The area where the Council squibbed it was on citizenship ceremonies, so Council voted to retain citizenship ceremonies on the day, which I think is highly disrespectful because it means that they will be asking, you know, the Wurundjeri to do a welcome to country on that day, which I think is highly disrespectful to the Wurundjeri. But overall, the decision is a big step forward, despite that one blemish. It is a big step forward that it will recognise 26th of January as the beginning of an invasion of Australia and that it will stop referring to the 26th of January as Australia Day because I think we need to recognise in this country that there was a genocidal war carried out against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and genocidal policies, not just destruction of people but genocide, a cultural genocide and other genocidal policies carried out as well. And it seems that the media shock jocks and the federal government is trying to, and the particularly right-wing Zionist groups and the Jewish community trying to scandalise the fact that I compared celebrating Australia Day to celebrating the Holocaust and calling that Germany Day. And the Australian asked me if I stand by those comments, and I absolutely stand by those comments, I think, that is a totally defendable comparison because this was a genocide and I know that while there are increasing numbers of Australians who recognise that this was a genocide, there's still a layer of Australians, especially in the older generation, who are unwilling to recognise that 
a genocide was carried out against Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I remember reading accounts of setting up farms in North Queensland where also racism was used by using poor Irish farmers or sending poor Irish farmers out to clear the land and set up farms. And when you read these accounts when, and talking about clearing land, you at first think, assume that they're talking about clearing trees off the land. But then you suddenly realise that actually they're not talking about clearing trees, they're talking about clearing people off the land. And certainly the area of Western Queensland that I come from, the entire Aboriginal population had either been killed or carted off to reserves and missions in central and north Queensland, to Woorabinda near Rockhampton and Palm Island. The reason for that is because they fought hard for their land. They were good fighters, and so they were carted off to Palm Island, where I gather the strongest freedom fighters were taken to. There's a history that Australians have to confront. That hasn't been confronted by a lot of Australians yet. But there is a growing move, I believe, which is reflected in the incredibly large Invasion Day protests and the incredibly large protests in support of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights across the nation over the last few years and support for the Change the Date movement, which began in Fremantle, Although personally, I can't think of a, a date you could change to other than the date that a treaty signed. The vote was seven to four. Did it get a bit nasty? Yes, and, you know, it was quite nasty. And I think the, certainly the councillors who argued against and voted against never actually responded to the arguments put forward by people about why the date should be changed. I mean, certainly 3AW, Neil Mitchell, Tom Elliott and so forth have really tried to, and the Hell Sun, Andrew Bolt, etc., have really tried to scandalise this decision and in particular scandalise my comparison of the genocide against First Nations people in Australia with the, gen with the genocide in Nazi Germany. Most of the vitriol has focused on that aspect more than any other aspect. But it's something I totally stand by and certainly I know that the Rangery Council totally supports the Council not recognising the 26th of January as Australia Day and they wanted the Council to stop recognising that date as Australia Day. The Rangery Council would have also preferred that citizenship ceremonies not be held on that day so that's another battle for us to have in the future on the council. I was just going to say that. Are you you're going to have another go at that one in the future? I certainly will. Yes. I don't know about other councils, but I certainly will. And thanks to Sue Bolton, City of Moreland. Councillor, it is 3CR. It's what we do. 4.58, you could be listening on 8.55am on your old wireless. You could be listening digital, 3CR. You could be listening on your computer streaming for a week, 3cr.org.au, or you can have this and many other programs sent to your computer podcast so that you can listen to it at your leisure and you'll find all the information on that also at 3cr.org.au. 
You're invited to the Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering on the 7th and 8th of October at the Victoria Trades Hall in Nam, Melbourne. Speakers from Latin America, so-called Australia, West Papua, Aotearoa and other communities will come together to share their struggles, setbacks and victories. In two days of speakers, workshops, stalls, music, food, discussion, building bridges and more. The 2017 Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering, October 7th and 8th at the Victoria Trades Hall. While colonialism, capitalism and neoliberalism are global, so is the resistance. For more information, including donations and how to volunteer, email lasnet.solidarity at gmail.com or call 0425 then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withcast Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm, for a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Call Barbie. Time it's on. And next, Emma's report from Dr Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. What follows is the first part of her talk at the recent IPAN conference, Independent Peaceful Australian Network conference, which was held in Melbourne last month. Firstly, like others, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And of all people, I mean, part of my talk is about nuclear weapons. The Indigenous people never ceded this land, but they also have been very damaged by what we've brought in terms of weaponry to this land and internationally. And I think yeah, it's important that we recognise what's happened and that this land was never ceded. I'm going to talk about two things. Firstly, American militarism in Australia and what it's costing us. Secondly, um, again, I'll go into a bit about nuclear disarmament. It's really interesting. ANZUS is so overblown in the press. I'm probably not telling any of you anything, but if you look at something like the NATO agreement, where it says that an attack on one equals an attack on all, and it includes the mention of using armed forces, ANZUS talks about acting to meet a common danger in consultation with constitutional processes. Well, this is just woolly words. Gareth Evans said that they could choose almost anything for an action, whatever they wanted to mean. And Hugh White said there was a lot of questions about what act to act meant, including a stern letter would be enough. So the ANZUS Treaty is, is incredibly overblown by our media. In terms of direct costs, well, there's plenty of them. In the Vietnam War, we had about 2 million Vietnam civilians die. We had about 1.1 million Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers die. 
certainly plenty of Australians died and the disability and death for our community was ongoing. Long-lasting. We still see Vietnam veterans suffering with alcoholism, PTSD. There are huge personal costs in going to war. In terms of the financial costs, we've spent more than $15 billion on military operations and overseas employments in the last two decades. Currently, we're spending about $550 million in the Middle East and Afghanistan. This is despite the fact that the most recent Defence White Paper in 2016 said that there was no more than a remote possibility of a military attack by another country on Australia in the foreseeable future. It's worth noting that America has asked Australia to increase our defence spending, as you would all know, to 2% of GDP. Well, this is what it looks like. Unlike the rest of the Australian budget, which has been subject to quite massive austerity cuts, the defence budget sails onwards, ever upwards. The World Bank has said that there's a really strong link between escalating military budgets, between devastation abroad and increasing detrimental effects on the social fabric at home. The other side of, a, of a, us spending 2% of the GDP is that we're massively outstripping our neighbours and so there's quite a significant risk that we in fact ourselves may be sparking a regional arms race. In addition, our US alliance leads us to some incredibly poor choices of actual defence armaments and the best illustration or the worst illustration of this is the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, which is not designed for defending a nation like Australia. It's designed to join attacks with America. This is a project that's been enormously slow. It's cost, it started off estimated they were going to cost $40 million. The latest estimate is they're going to cost $190 million per plane and rising. They are not good. They're shot out of the sky by older planes. When two of them flew over for the Avalon Air Show this year, it was heard by some expert advisors they were very pleased that they made it across the Pacific. They didn't take off on one of the days because the weather wasn't right. The appropriately named US Combat Air Command General, the American guy, General Mike Hostage, said that the F-35 was not built as an air superiority platform. It actually has to fly in tandem with the F-22s because it needs the F-22s to stop it from being shot out of the sky. However, the US will not sell the F-22 Raptors to any other country, so we're buying a very dodgy plane at a very high price, and it's, it's actually damaging to our own self-reliance in terms of defence. The security costs of the US alliance, once again, we're not making decisions in our own national interest. Many areas, but Middle East, the Philippines, increase the risk of attacks on Australian soil, as do the bases which have been talked about a lot yesterday. And yet yeah, decisions are being made that are locking us into US dependence. Indirect costs. Well, I don't need to tell any of you that 15 billion would go a long way in indigenous health, in general health, in education, in housing, and working to, for climate change. This is not helpful. What's also happening, which is very serious, is that we're de-skilling in terms of diplomacy, that the diplomatic core of Australia are being substantially less, getting less and less money. This is a really major loss. We also are seeing in our society increasing secrecy and military operational language, and this leads to much less transparency about what the government's doing. You only have to look at what's happening with the refugees coming by sea. There's quite a bit happening, we just don't know about it. So this incredibly reduces accountability and transparency. Customs and immigration has become border force. In the education sector, as Alex Adney Brown 
touched on uh, the University of Melbourne taking on Lockheed Martin and five universities in South Australia having weapons companies come into their, their purview. What's especially a worry, I'm just going to focus for a moment on University of Melbourne, in their press release when they rejoiced at the 13 million that Lockheed Martin was going to give them for a research laboratory, they said, and I quote, they were in an ideal position to assist Lockheed Martin with their research goals. So basically, this is particularly a worry with artificial intelligence and lethal autonomous weapon systems, which I think are very rapidly becoming the next weapons of mass destruction. Lockheed Martin is developing these, and we are now partnering with them to do that. And there's a pervasiveness of defence language excusing building weapons of aggression and attack. More alarming still is that weapons are now the new job creation scheme. We couldn't manage to support a car industry, but we're spending a lot of money supporting the weapons industry. Many of you wouldn't have heard of the Defence Science Institute, but it was set up in 2010 by the federal government to encourage the weapons industry in Australia. And yes, it's um, very interesting. Lockheed Martin... In the weapons industry is known to be the most corrupt industry in the world with Transparency International saying 40% of all bribery internationally is related to the arms trade. Lockheed Martin has possibly the worst reputation historically for bribery but has tended, as has had more and more exposure of that, to turn its focus to developing local industries and local academic programs because they can then in turn locally support. They can lobby if the government should be choosing not to for instance, to choose like Canada to question whether having the F-35 joint strike fighter contracts is a good idea. Having local industries, tame local industries and tame local universities is very useful. So I'm just going to just do a little side. Lockheed Martin for years has said that what's good for America is good for Lockheed Martin or what's good for Lockheed Martin. Well, now we're seeing it for Australia. I mean, this is from the Lockheed Martin website. So how can you resist security industry and Australia as selling points? Similarly, they, uh, again, from the Lockheed Martin website, technology, sustainment, partnerships, industry and sovereign capability and partners to our community. The propaganda is formidable. The orange graph, orange part of the pie is the world weapons global arms trade. And then, so Lockheed Martin is about 8%. And then that red, big red dot is how much of Lockheed Martin is actually weapons. That thin veneer on the edge is what's... So about 80% of what Lockheed Martin produces is weapons. And this $36 trillion is the value of United States contracts with Lockheed Martin. So they're pretty powerful and coincidentally is about the same as the GDP of Yemen where Lockheed Martin jets are currently being used to bomb Yemenis via Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The other pie graph here is, is worth noting in that Lockheed Martin last year in America spent $19 million on political donations and lobbying. And these political donations largely went to the blue, which is the Republicans, surprise, but they also largely went to people on the committees, the two committees that make up the most important decisions. So the Armed Services Committee and the appropriations panels were the recipients of most of Lockheed Martin's largesse, so a lot of decisions are helped along by a little bit of cash. It's interesting to note that in 2012, the um, Armed Services Committee came within one vote of cancelling the whole of the F-35 project. It's a very powerful company in a, in a, company, in a country that's um, now our partner. What does that mean for Australia? With the partnership with the United States, we are increasing our weapons trade because we've boosted our, G our spend to 2% of GDP. So we are also face a risk of political interference, similar to what happens in the US. We have an incredibly opaque donation system. 
which needs reform. So I think war powers reform is critical. I think we definitely need to vote before we go into any conflict. But we also seriously need a federal anti-corruption commission. We seriously need much, much, much better transparency about our donations. We also need ideally public-funded elections, and we also need proper enforcement of lobbying rules so people like Kim Beasley can't go straight to Lockheed Martin as a lobbyist, nor have people like Ian McFarland go and work for the Queensland Minerals Council straight after being the energy minister. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, potential for impacts on Australian elections and who wins the elections, especially in marginal seats. A little bit of money can go a long way. Internationally, us being a partner of the US and increasing our weapons expenditure means that we have, as I've said, risk of a regional arms race, normalisation of war as a society, conflict becomes a much more real option, and what's saddest of all is that our foreign aid has been stripped. If you look at the graph, it's sort of the inverse of the the defence expenditure one and we are heading for 0.21% of GDP. Now, the OEC recommendation is 0.7% of GDP. The UK, the English, put us to shame. They, when they were going through the worst of their cuts to their budgets, they legislated that their foreign aid would sit at the 0.7% because they said they weren't going to make budget cuts on the back of the world's very poorest. Well, here in Australia we have. Tony Abbott said it was going to help us fund our roads. Joe Hockey said was still that it was going to fund our defence and strategic interests, so basically going straight from foreign aid into weapons. So it's pretty, yeah. As I said, diplomacy is withering away. We did quite good work in Cambodia and in Bougainville helping with peacemaking. Peacemaking doesn't make headlines. Peacemaking is not terribly interesting. Its budget is a tiny fraction of defence, and yet it's incredibly cost-effective could save hundreds and thousands of lives and billions of dollars. And uh, Norway has a dedicated mediation unit, and if we were regarded as an independent nation, we too could have a dedicated mediation unit and in the Southeast Asia work as, a, as an honest broker trying to defuse conflicts rather than jumping on the US bandwagon and, and flaring them up. And that was Dr Margie Beavers, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, That was part of her speech at the IPAN conference, the International Peaceful Australian Network Conference, which was held at the MUA conference room last month. Thanks to Margie. Time now is 14 minutes past five o'clock. The Indigenous Social Justice Association has been campaigning for over 10 years to end Indigenous deaths in custody and provide support to affected communities. Come join us as we let our hair down at a trivia night to raise funds to support our ongoing work. Bring yourself or come with a group and take home the trophy. Saturday the 21st of October at the Victoria Hotel in Brunswick. Tickets are $20 waged or $10 concession. For more information and to buy tickets, head to isjamelbourne.com. That's isjamelbourne.com. The Indigenous Social Justice Association, Melbourne, proudly supports 3CR. I hear the Come to the Union Activism and History Conference, featuring a first-hand account of BLF Green Bands, Farm worker organising with the National Union of Workers, rebel women, a secret history of Trades Hall, campaigning for a union yes, and much more. The Union Activism and History Conference, 
hosted by Socialist Alternative and Red Flag Newspaper. Saturday, October the 14th at Trades Hall, Carlton. For more information and bookings, head to redflag.org.au. A 3CR supporter. This morning I rang human rights activist Jack Smith at his home in Narridge in Western Australia and I asked him what the issues were that are both occupying his waking times and perhaps his nightmares as well. It's so funny because this morning I thought I just was so grateful for sleep. It's a period of not thinking anything. And it's actually, when I'm at a point where climate change is so rampant, politics is so ridiculous, politicians, so-called world leaders, are five-year-old kids throwing tantrums, and the world is just in a heap of a mess. It's at the point of um, a changing society where we just feel like letting go of all the old things that we held on to. What is the world coming to is the, is the phrase, isn't it? That's the, what is the world coming to? And, uh, you know, it's the old dad, the old granddad or the old aunt that we scathingly looked at when they would say that. What is the world coming to? But it's actually a real question. What is the world coming to? And will there be a future? We're frantically trying to find another planet. And there is something really ironic about that because is this world now so down the gurgler environmentally, socially, politically, and in terms of social cohesion? Have we completely destroyed our community and replaced it by a society where we're all money-making entities? in the eyes of politics, or is there a future on this planet? And it's, it's the really, these are the basic questions that are coming to us. The other day I thought, will there be a post-Trump world in a future of decent politics? Will there be decent personality politics? Will that eventually overcome the incredible slump we seem to be in at the moment? Or are, are people like the princelings in Canada, um, Justin Trudeau and what we had in America before the Trump disaster, Obama. Do we have decent people in the future that will be oozing out national and international cohesion and oneness? There was an element in Obama, no matter what you think of the political decisions he made, there was an element in the spirit of Obama, which is a similar element in the spirit of um, Justin Trudeau, are these exceptions in the world, these princelings in governance that actually spiritually try to lead the world into the future and who actually are like sticking out their hand and says, come on, hold my hand and follow me and you'll be fine. Will the reassurance be in politics or are we past that point? And it's an unanswered question. I can't answer it because I'm... At a basic level, also hankering for oneness and harmony and decent life and lifestyle. So I hang on to to the memories of Obama and I hang on to the spirit of um, Justin Trudeau. Am I just being really stupid or is this okay? And will there be others standing up or are we all doomed to be governed by the idiots like Donald Trump, the bureaucrats like Bill Shorten, 
or the other idiots, like in Australia, Pauline Hanson and Cory Bernardi. There is also another thing. There was a beautiful article in the Fairfax Papers this morning by Peter Fitzsimons. He basically says, look, the roar of the NRL and that singer from America doing his um, One Love song. And the roar was almighty. And it's almost like that, that writing almost gave me the chills. And also the knowledge that the rampant screaming of people like Tony Abbott, Corey Bernardi, and a couple of others are just so irrelevant. We do not measure our decisions based on what Tony Abbott utters. He is so irrelevant. He's just such a man of the past. So is Corey Bernardi, and so are the others. The common people do have a spirit which is good and hopeful and of the future. And that's what I'm searching for on a personal level, on a deep personal level. I think we're also, all of us are searching for that. Can we hold on to good and decent love-based leadership? Is that an aberration in politics or is this pointing to a future where that is possible, where that will be more universal than it is at the moment? And, you know, we all try to look for the Jesus Christ in people around us. You know, I smiled and I was quite cynical and I, and I was a bit wiser when all the people of South Australia, almost universally, says, Oh, Nick Xenophon, Nick Xenophon, Nick Xenophon, our new leader, we're so proud of him. Well, no, Nick Xenophon is a liberal with footnotes. He is just a slightly right-of-centre conservative politician who is more flippant than anyone else in the Liberal Party. That's why he became an independent. And he's got um, a creative nous and he's got a lot of flair, but he's still a conservative man. And he's not my leader. And, you know, I just felt like yelling that off the rooftops in uh, in Adelaide and South Australia when he was at his heyday of popularity as a new federal politician who established his, um, you know, growing party, the Xenophon Network. So what is happening at the moment? Are we doomed in a, in a veil of negativity where we just need to run and hide from the idiots that govern our world, preserve our humanity by being independent of politics and, you know, saying uh, no matter about politics because we just need to live without them, or are we able to actually say, well, no, we expect a future where democracy is real, where governance is um, based on whole acceptance, a good pointing to the future. What did the people expect when they got rid of the Barnett government in your state? Oh, that's very local. Barnett was just so, it was so clear. It's actually funny how that happened because people keep voting in conservatives in Australia and in Western Australia. And it was so clear that Barnett was such a, a 19th century emperor, really, in his style. And it's almost like we need to feel that discussed so often that we finally get the courage and kick him out big time because it was a really big election. But that's more local. You know, WA is certainly, in my mind, not representative of Australia or of the world. Well, in a sense, Jack, are we looking at 
the natural pro- progression of capitalism to explain what's happening with these leaders that we seem to have these days? I believe actually we're actually living in a post-capitalist world and we're just trying to continually trying to get rid of the idiots that belong in that world. And Turnbull belongs to that. Turnbull, every conservative politician, every liberal national politician belongs to that old ridiculous world. And as far as I'm concerned, that party should be annihilated. It, you know, the reality is if we, if we achieve what we need to achieve in Australia, we need to actually transform the Liberal Party into a fringe minority party with about four members in the House and in the Senate. And what would a Jack Smith National Party look like? It wouldn't be called national, because nationalism is such a, a passé concept. I would have a social democratic government that actually believes in the first place that redistribution of capital to the people is incredibly important. A social democratic government uh, left of centre is more what I would be looking for in terms of politics context. Now, the funny thing is about Labour, you can say whatever you like of Labour, but there are some signs that there are good philosophies building in the Labour Party in Australia. And there are several speeches from Wayne Swan and even Shorten, Penny Wong, that are... um, pointing very strongly that Labour wants to solidly head into the direction of a more social equity, equal distribution, redistribution party. As David Marsh said a couple of times to me, but also in public, it seems that the Labour Party is the most modern it has ever been, the most progressive than it's ever been. A lot of people don't agree with that. I know, but I'm just challenging everyone. I'm not necessarily agreeing with it. I mean, in terms of my downright voting, if I were a voter, I'm not because I'm a foreign national. I'm an alien in Australia. In terms of um, my own voting pattern, I would, um, uh, at minimum, vote Greens anyway. I couldn't give my vote to Labour or Liberals or Nationals. And we need to be of that mindset that we need to have our own political framework even if none of the parties represent it. That's our duty as human beings. It's a very difficult um, status to achieve, but we need to try that and preserve our inner decency on that level. It's not just here in Australia. It needs in many other countries of the world for change like that. You know, we're talking international politics this morning, really. I'm just very busy at the moment, um, doing the website, redoing the website, making it suitable for um, smaller devices and mobile phones because, you know, the world of the internet has changed so much for the last 10 years that my website is totally outdated. And just this morning I listened to uh, Barack Obama's acceptance speech of um, 2008, August 2008. I just confirmed that he's, um, he's brought something very beautiful to politics. And the asylum seekers? Don't mention the asylum seekers. We're in Australia, where we don't want to know about them and where we don't talk about them because the government for decades already has put them out of the reach of the media and lawyers. Abject, disgusting. It's kind of the arsent of politics in Australia, asylum seekers. It's like we are the rulers and we shut the gate behind us and bugger off anyone else who wants to come. 
it's kind of the elitist 19th century mindset that has made the 21st century politics in Australia. It is disgusting, expert. Anybody in Australia who wants to really go down to the level of personal integrity needs to address this issue. Do not close your mind for it because you become an abuser just like those in Canberra are. You are a human rights criminal if you do not speak out about the human rights criminals at work in Canberra. If prison sentences would be attached to the United Nations Refugee Convention and to human rights crimes, then 80% of our politici politicians would be in jail. That's an important thing to realize. If prison sentences were connected to human rights crimes or of, of a considerable order, then 80% of our politicians probably would be in jail right now. Because I think actually that's where they belong in terms of how the way we've treated asylum seekers. The White Australia policy never really went away, did it? Nope. Not just the immigration no. department. It's the White Australia policy. It's the terra nullius principle. It's the arrogance of white British settlers. Part of the stupidity of the liberal conservatives in Australia is, okay, they're still white men running around in Australia, being absolutely petrified about the size of this country, the temperature of this country, the vastness of this country, the ecology of the country. You know, the sky is different, the trees are different, the soil is different, the smells are different, the winds are different from beautiful Europe where we came from. So we're still running around with it incredibly petrifying fear of living in this shocking country that we are so scared of. And that's why the liberals and the conservative politicians, but not only them, have always given the open door to foreign investors. And the investors and the rich and the capitalists are always welcome and we will close our eyes to their corruption because we are so scared we need the money. We need the money, we need foreign investment, we need trillions of dollars in Australia and we're also always, always in that mindset we don't have enough because we're so scared of this country and we're still scared. So we need more investment to make us feel better. And that's Jack Smith from the town of Narragin, south of Perth in Western Australia, 29 minutes past five. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. When you were young, did you walk to school? Most children these days don't. In October, 
Hundreds of thousands of children, parents and grandparents around Victoria will be part of Vic Health's Walk to School Month. Why not join them? Walk to school with your kids or grandchildren and enjoy the chance to talk and teach road safety skills while getting active yourself. It's a great way to spend quality time together. Ask your kids' primary school if they are doing something special for Walk to School Month and remember to walk, ride a bike or scooter to and from school in October. To find out more or to register, visit walktoschool.vic.gov.au, a 3CR supporter. G'day, this is Jacob Gregg. Starting in October, I'll be hosting a Friday rave here on 3CR. Each Friday, a different guest and I will be bringing our kitchen table analysis of the political issue of the week into the studio and relentlessly pulling it apart with a slant you won't find anywhere else. So make sure you knock off in time to grab a beer before five from Friday the 6th of October when my first week's guest will be Felicity Ruby here on Community Radio 3CR. Next, the monthly review of issues concerning genetically modified organisms with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, we're coming up to the National GM Regulatory Scheme Review 2017. Is that a yearly review? No, this is every five years. So there have been two before since the uh, scheme came into effect in 2001. But there's quite a lot of industry pushback against it this time, with the industry particularly calling for the state's powers to declare themselves GM-free being taken away, the labelling of GM and GM-free foods under challenge, and also a call to deregulate all the new products and new GM techniques that have just been invented in the last five years, so really have no history of safe use or much evidence of their safety at this point. And who are the proponents? Proponents are uh, industry organisations like CropLife and Oz Biotech, but standing behind them, of course, are uh, Monsanto, Bayer, BASF, Dow, and all the other chemical and GM companies that are getting increasing power at the moment because uh, we see a great concentration of ownership and control happening. In fact, in this week's rural media, Bayer is trying to justify its takeover of Monsanto. We expect by the end of the year that Monsanto will be no more. It will have been gobbled up by Bayer Crop Science from Germany. And meanwhile, Chem China is taking over Syngenta. And we see also that Dow and DuPont are getting together to be one big conglomerate. And between them, these three entities will own some 70% of the global seed supply and around 60% of agrochemicals initially. And uh, they're expected to get even bigger as time passes. And how much of that business is GM? It's quite a small part, although uh, between those three, they own all of the genetically manipulated crop varieties. It's a substantial part of their business, but... They are very diverse entities. For instance, Bayer, of course, is in healthcare, pharmaceuticals, as well as um, crop science, uh, which covers the agrochemicals and the conventional and genetically manipulated seed, just to take one example. 
It sounds like it's a David and Goliath battle for smaller groups, interest groups, to oppose these companies. How do you do it when there is a review such as this? We just work a lot harder and we um, have been persistent for a long time. Uh, Gene Ethics is going to be 30 next January and uh, we just uh, keep campaigning, keep informing and keep advocating for GM Free. To their credit, I suppose, the governments of Australia at least and the governments of the world have uh, come up with the International Biosafety Protocol, which of course Australia is not a signatory to. But here in Australia, we've also got this review going on into uh, our regulatory system and we're hoping that we may get some good result. You always live in hope. For instance, we're hoping that all of the new genetic manipulation techniques and their products will be regulated We've said to the um, government and to the regulators, look, if you deregulate them now before they have any presence in the market or uh, in the environment, there will be no way uh, for the community to know what's being released, what genetically manipulated crops, insects, trees, fish, and a whole variety of other organisms are going to be put out there. And that is most unsatisfactory and unfair and undemocratic so we're arguing the point we've made our case uh, we put in our submission by last Friday this process though is ongoing there will be a draft a further draft of options uh, for discussion in November and December and then in March or expected around March of next year there will be a further consultation about validating the draft findings of the inquiry which is being conducted by the Federal Health Department in which the Office of Gene Technology Regulator is located. So if anybody's interested in that, they can Google Australia's GM Regulations Review. You can sign up to a newsletter there which will keep you posted about what's happening and about the process which is going to go on for at least the next six months. As you said, one of the issues is um, push to NGM and GM free food labels. What's the situation with comparable countries overseas in this area? Well, there is a major discussion at the moment actually in Europe and uh, Monsanto's had a falling out of, with the governments there just in the last few days. The governments have stripped Monsanto of its um, access to lobbying and representation on committees because they refuse to turn up to explain their shonky dealings with certain safety test data that uh, there have been claims about the data being rigged and so on. Monsanto in a two-page letter said that it wouldn't appear, that it defended its position and really that the Europeans could just forget it. <laughs> so um, at the moment the companies there are in real trouble. Bayer, even though it's European-based, has really decamped and stopped all its GM research in Europe. So Europe's still very solid. Everything genetically manipulated in the food supply, with the exception, unfortunately, of animal products, is labelled. That's really the toughest um, labelling regime anywhere. In North America, it's very weak, and here in Australia although we nominally have the labelling of genetically manipulated food products, most are exempt because things like vegetable oils, starches and sugars are said to be so highly refined that you can't tell the difference from conventional products 
and therefore no labelling is required. Another issue is the claim by the Queensland Government that GM crops will fix climate change. Where do they get oh, that from? He's, yes, he's a man out of control. The Environment Minister of Queensland has been making all sorts of outrageous claims about all sorts of things. Of course, that government is very, very keen on the Adani coal mine, uh, pushing ahead with that. And meanwhile, making these dinky little claims about, oh, yes, but climate change will be fixed by genetically manipulated crops. And, of course, they are fracking for gas and claiming that as a transitional fuel and so on. It's really quite a circus and just window dressing to try to get their coal project up. Meanwhile, there's a very, very interesting full-page advertisement in the rural media this week in which um, 1,700 farmers and graziers from around Australia under the banner of Farmers for Climate Action are telling particularly the National Party, but all rural and regional members of Parliament, that it's about time they got out of the way and allowed regional communities to wholeheartedly embrace renewable energy systems because, they say, the investment provided at the moment is $1 to $2 billion a year into rural communities. And by their estimation, and they do give a reference, 8 out of 10 Australian farmers support more renewable energy in regional Australia. So that's all looking very positive. And uh, GM crops, of course, no drought or salt-tolerant crops, no nitrogen fixation in grains uh, that the industry has claimed would assist farmers in all sorts of ways. These new traits do not exist, uh, are never likely to come to fruition because of the... Uh, the crudity and um, failure to perform of the genetic manipulation techniques. It amazes me where these people can get up and say that I'm the Minister for Agriculture and, and just say the most outrageous things everyone knows isn't true and still maintain their positions. Yes, well, of course, um, agriculture does have, have a key role to play. Um, a substantial part of greenhouse gas, gases are... Um, emitted by industrial uh, food production systems. So firstly, uh, with oil and phosphates running out, we do need to transition to more sustainable and environmentally friendly agricultural systems. And that's an urgent need, particularly for the direction of research and development resources, which are now running at $3 billion a year for research, mostly paid for by farmers but also taxpayers pay a very significant share of that and we need a new set of priorities not focusing on sideshows like GM crops and animals and uh, get on with making the transition into those new sustainable farming systems to feed, house and clothe future generations and of course the sequestration of carbon in the soil is a really big issue for climate change and uh, that's where farmers can really play a role, getting those um, organic materials back into the soil, getting soil microorganisms working effectively to decompose that material and incorporate it into soil is really a major co potential contribution of farming to those systems for uh, reducing carbon emissions. But, of course, industrial agriculture is very bad at doing that, and that's another reason that we need the transition I've described. 
I know this is a bit outside your field, but the Adani coal mine, you would have seen the Four Corners program last night, and we don't really need a program like this to convince us that it's not a good idea. Well, I haven't seen it yet, to be honest, but um, of course, um, the, the thing is totally bizarre, totally ruinous, and uh, it's about time that uh, the resources that are being like the billion-dollar subsidy that the governments want to um, give Adani uh, is put into uh, real renewables, real sustainability for future generations, and we need to get on with that job urgently. Forget about coal. We see that um, all of the governments are now getting into renewables, energy storage to make renewables uh, a more viable proposition, particularly in South Australia. We need to be supporting those developments, not putting our scarce research and development resources into sideshows like uh, genetically manipulated crops and foods that nobody wants to eat anyway. And we're, of course, getting very, very substantial premiums uh, in overseas markets for GM-free canola. Just this last week, for instance, in WA, the premiums were up to $40. Uh, the same here in Victoria and in New South Wales, just $11 per tonne. And the prices for GM-free in GM-free South Australia are very good as well, representing a premium to the GM-free option. So that's the way to go. GM-free is the way to be, and uh, it's about time that our governments woke up and uh, started down the new path for the future. Even though there's this pressure on South Australia to give up its GM's anti-GM status, it's determined to stay that way. Well, yes. In fact, it was great to see um, Premier Weatherall come out on landline a couple of weeks ago uh, loud and clear saying GM-free is the way we're going to stay. Counterparts in the Greens, of course, Mark Parnell and Marshall, the leader of the Liberals, although he was a bit weaker on the position, was saying GM-free. And the Nick Xenophon group, which is uh, increasingly influential in South Australia as well, is, uh, has GM-free policies. So we want to stand up for GM-free South Australia. A new report out, which is being discussed, was commissioned from the University of Adelaide uh, for the state or by the state government, which shows that there are very significant benefits uh, from the GM-free food industries, especially wine, dairy grains, a whole raft of very good benefits, particularly for both local and export markets, bringing premiums to clean, green South Australian food. It's just a pity if a few more states haven't joined with South Australia. We do have yes, some. Yes, Tasmania is still GM-free, of course, and yes. so is the ACT in Northern Territory. Others do recognise it, and it's just WA that's growing uh, something like... 20% of its um, canola this year is GM. It doesn't have any other GM crops. Victoria, of course, about 10% or so of uh, GM canola in that mix. And in New South Wales, it's around 10 as well. But something like 98% of all Australian farmers actually remain GM-free. So this is not a growth industry. This is not an industry that has legs. Farmers are not enamoured of if we were to run a good ad in the rural media, we might also get 1,700 farmers and graziers to come on board to say GM-free is the way to be. 
So it really doesn't matter how much they keep promoting GM. There's only a very, very few crops that actually are GM. Well, that's right. And the number of traits, of course, remains in the broad acre area. Soybean, corn, canola, cotton and sugar beet. Sugar beet only in North America. The two traits are, of course, the Roundup tolerance. So you can spray Roundup herbicide more often and at higher doses without damaging the crop. And the other one is the uh, BT gene, which uh, they're built into crops so they produce their own insect toxins. And, of course, particularly in North America where the largest proportions of, of their crops are GM, they've now got big headaches, very unmanageable big headaches out on the land where they've got herbicide-tolerant weeds that are unmanageable and they've also got insects that are not being managed effectively by the um, insect toxins in the crop plants. So uh, they're having to spray more. They're, uh, at the moment, Monsanto's in huge trouble. It uh, last year launched soybeans and corn that have got dicamba, another herbicide resistance, as well as the Roundup. And, of course, farmers have sprayed with the dicamba, especially very liberally this last summer, northern summer. Dicamba volatilizes very easily. It becomes an aerosol. It drifts around in the atmosphere. And now Monsanto is confronted with a huge number of uh, class actions for spray drift onto crops that were completely destroyed as a result of these spray drifts. Several states have now banned dicamba's use as well. So it's a very messy business. It hasn't worked. Farmers are now trying to, in North America, are now trying to go back to conventional varieties, which is where the strong demand is for GM-free products. That's the fastest-growing sector, in fact, of the North American food industry, with everybody flocking to products labelled GM-free. What about the promises that if you plant GM crops such as canola, you'll do better when there's a drought? Well, that's just one of the phony claims. Uh, Because uh, drought tolerance is a multigenic trait, that's to say many genes are involved in that particular characteristic of the plant. It's impossible for genetic manipulation techniques to be able to cut and paste that characteristic from somewhere else in the biological universe into a canola plant, into a um, soybean or corn. It's only those couple of single gene traits, and that's why the thing has really stalled. Uh, Roundup tolerance and the BT insect toxins are mediated by single genes, which, yes, the technology has been able to cut and paste, but they haven't been able to go beyond there to fulfill their far-fetched claims of drought and salt tolerance, nitrogen fixation in grains, more nutritious foods, and a whole raft of other things that over the last 30 years have been claimed and have just quietly been dropped because the technology is not up to doing it. And that remains the situation even with the new GM techniques. You just think of the, the billions of dollars that have been spent on research for this GM over the years, and the results are very poor. Very, very poor indeed, but of course... With Monsanto especially selling the seed chemical package, it's been a, uh, an economic bonanza for, for them. 
selling the uh, Roundup tolerant seed and the Roundup as well to spray on it. It's been quite a nice little money earner. But overall, the whole thing has been rather a disaster and failure. And uh, with the tens of billions of dollars that have been spent that should have gone into that transition that I talked about from unsustainable industrial agriculture that involves inputs, huge inputs of oil-based chemicals, fuel and fertilisers like phosphates which are now running out, we should have been spending those research and development resources on making organic agriculture a more going proposition because there is still work to do there and on making the transition into sustainable agricultural systems to sustainably feed future generations because um, many people in the world are in food insecure. We do need to do things better. We need ecological farming systems which are now well catalogued, particularly in the United Nations report IAASTD. Can't remember exactly what the acronym stands for, but look up IAASTD and it lays out there after years of scientific research by hundreds of scientists uh, how the transition could and should be done. Published 10 years ago now, uh, but not seriously enacted because of the blowback from the agrochemical and seed industries, which, as I said, are getting more and more powerful. And governments have got to step in and get us on a new track to sustainable farming systems. Similar to people hanging on to coal instead of putting their resources into renewables. Well, yes, when boffins and industry have made commitments to, uh, to particular lines of research, development and investment, of course they want to squeeze every last bit out of it. And likewise with coal, that's the agenda. Those resources are still seen as being there to be used, to be a cheap return, because, of course, the capital investment and in all that infrastructure to use coal is still there. But to their credit, we see um, the energy industries of Australia saying about the Liddell coal plant, for instance, no, we're not going to extend its life. No, it isn't an efficient technology. It isn't a clean technology anymore. And we're getting out of that business. That's the kind of thinking we need. That's the thinking that we've seen demonstrated by Elon Musk in talking about the new energy systems, the battery storage, which will make renewable energies more viable and squeeze coal because coal is now becoming outrageously expensive and we can do better with renewables. Once we get economies of scale, they'll be more affordable, more accessible, more reliable. They're the way of the future. And another thing that's not been talked about with that Liddell plant is the, the health impacts on the people there. The people want to close. It's a bit similar to Latrobe Valley where the people have been suffering respiratory and other problems for decades. Well, yes, the Liddell must choose by date and needs to be phased out and we should get on with it quickly, putting those capital resources into the renewable energies that rural communities are obviously welcoming and can benefit from. That's the way of the future. That's the clean energy future that uh, most Australians now want and our governments should get behind. They're just, as usual, trailing along, not being leaders but being followers and it's time our governments 
turned around and did the right thing for a change. Finally, another Four Corners report a little while ago, and that was on the theft of water in the cotton areas in New South Wales. What's happened to that report, and what should the government be doing with these cotton farmers? Well, I believe that the report is pretty tough, and it's ongoing, so we're not sure yet what the final eventualities will be. But meantime, 100%, virtually 100% of Australia's cotton is uh, genetically manipulated. There are no drought-tolerant varieties, and water, because it's a very water-demanding crop, has been and remains a very serious problem. It was the cotton growers who stole the water. I think we now need to ask whether growing cotton at all, uh, particularly GM cotton in Australia, is the right thing to do. The answer is very likely to be no. It is a valuable little industry, but it comes at too high a cost to the environment. Of course, the oil from cotton seed comes into our food supply as well. There are questions about its impacts on public health as well. Let's examine it, and I think ultimately we might decide, well, sorry, let's move into hemp or into other crops instead of um, genetically manipulated cotton. And that was Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. If you'd like to find out more about the network, hop onto their webpage, Gene Ethics Network. I'm sure you'll find a, a whole range of materials there and information that you mightn't even know you needed to know, but I'm sure there's a, an awful lot there because, there's a, as I said, they've th- been going for just on 30 years now, doing a great job. It's just about time for me to go. I will be back next week at 4 o'clock. Done by Law is coming up in about two minutes' time. So I'll say bye for now and leave you with Paul Kelly.